The following is a message given at Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Worland, Wyoming. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness, Lord. It is amazing day in and day out to wake up to new mercies and new kindnesses from your hand. Lord, you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we thank you for all of the mercy you have shown us even today. You've given us life and health. You've given us a body of brothers and sisters in Christ who love us, who love you, and who desire with us to worship you. And Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning, it will be to us what it truly is, the word of our God speaking to us. And we pray that we will hear it and receive it as such, be blessed by it, be encouraged through it, and be drawn by it to worship you more. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The story's been told about an old preacher in North Dakota who traveled around small towns in North Dakota preaching at several churches every Sunday. There's towns in North Dakota that are too small to have their own pastor, and so there was this traveling preacher who would go between churches rotating where he would host services. And he had a reputation. His reputation was that he was the most thankful, grateful person these churches had ever met. It seemed like no matter what happened, he had something to be thankful for. Well, one Sunday in late February, there was a blizzard. It caused the roads to drift over. It caused the roads to be slick. And he was 20 minutes late because of the weather going from one service to the next. And the whole church was there waiting for him. And they sat there anxiously wondering, what is he going to say? And in spite of all of his troubles in getting there, without any comment about the fact that he was 20 minutes late, he stood behind the pulpit and began to pray. And here's what he prayed. Father, I thank you that every other day is not like today. Gratitude is one of the marks of God's people. When God saves a person, when he changes their heart, one of the things he does is he gives them a heart that's thankful. And this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 through 9. And even though the church at Corinth is a mess, even though there's a lot you could find wrong with the church at Corinth, Paul still finds enough of the grace of God that he's prompted to respond by giving thanks for the work of God at the church at Corinth. So if you have a Bible, let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll read verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, 
so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're looking at verses 4 through 9 this morning, and we're going to do so under two main points. First, we're going to see Paul's gratitude expressed in verse 4. And then in verses 5 through 9, we're going to see Paul's gratitude explained. Paul's gratitude expressed and Paul's gratitude explained. We begin, though, looking at Paul's gratitude expressed. Look again at verse 4. Verse 4 says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. So Paul starts verse 4 the same way actually he starts a lot of his letters. He starts by expressing thanksgiving, praise for the work of God in the lives of the people that he's writing to. And he's saying in verse 4 that as often as he prays, he's giving thanks to God for the Corinthians. And and that's something we see in many of Paul's letters. Romans 1 verse 8 starts the same way. Romans 1 8 says, first... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in the whole world. Ephesians also starts this way in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. It says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. He addresses his letter to the Colossians in, Col- in Colossians 1.3 by saying, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Uh, Paul often starts his letters to churches and to individuals by expressing gratitude for the people that he's writing to. And, and in a lot of cases, that makes sense, doesn't it? There's things going on at the church at Corinth that should cause him to be thankful There were things going on with the churches in Rome that should make him thankful. But the Corinthians? Why in the world would Paul have anything to be thankful for about the Corinthians? We know things at the church at Corinth aren't going well. We know that the church has fallen into a state of disrepair. We know that there's a lady who has sent a messenger to tell Paul, this church is a hot mess. We know that Paul's also received a letter from this church saying, here's our problems. Can you help us fix them? Things aren't going well. And most of the, the book to the Corinthians is Paul addressing problems. So what in the world is he doing starting by saying, I'm so thankful for you. That becomes even more confusing when you realize some of the things that Paul says he's thankful for. Paul's thankful that utterance and wisdom are given to them and they lack no gift. Paul's going to come later in the letter and he's going to correct their false understanding of wisdom. He's going to rebuke their self-centered utterances of prophecy and speaking in tongues. He's going to fix the way they're using their spiritual gifts. And in spite of that, he starts the letter by saying, I'm so thankful that God has given you wisdom in utterance. I'm so thankful he's given you spiritual gifts. Some people have um, thought that Paul is being sarcastic here, that he's not actually thankful, but that he's using sarcasm as a rebuke. I don't think that's it at all. Paul's not thanking God for the way the Corinthians are tripping. 
He's thanking God, if you look carefully, for the work of God's grace in their lives in spite of their problems. That's important to notice because it shows us Paul is so focused on the work of grace in the lives of God's people, even when it's really small. He's so thankful and he's so focused on the work of grace that even when it's small, he can still find something to turn back and give thanks to God for it. But he, Paul's really, in verse 4, exemplifying what he'll write later to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.20 when he says, Give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God towards you in Christ Jesus. Psalm 92 verse 1 says, It's good. It's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises to His name, the name of the Most High. Verse 4 is actually really instructive to us. This teaches us something because I found verse 4 to be a rebuke in my own life this week because I find it so easy to find fault in God's people. I find it so easy to think first and foremost, this person sins in this way. This person's commitment is way down here and it should be up here. This person's doctrine is way over here and it should be over here. My first fleshly instinct when I think about God's people is not, wow, the grace of God's awesome. Praise God. My First instinct is more often than not to think of what is wrong with people and to be critical of it. And because of that, I miss the opportunity to see the grace of God where it actually is and to then turn around and give God thanks for it. And Paul's showing us that even when the work of God is present in seed form, even when it's stifled and suppressed by sin, In all of God's people and at all times, there is enough grace that we should be thankful for it. One of the ways we can do what Paul is doing. So on Tuesday, as God was rebuking me in verse 4, one of the things I did is I went through, and you can do this too, I went through the church directory and the list of the names of all the people who regularly attend here, and I thought long and hard about where do I see the grace of God in these people's lives? And then turning that back to God and praising Him, thanking Him. None of us have arrived, myself included. But in all of us, we should see enough of the work of God's grace if we are His people that we should have something to give praise and thanks on behalf of each other. So one of the ways we can already apply verse 4 is by asking ourselves, what do we look for? When we look at the people of God, what do we look for? I think you will always see what you look for. If you look for sin, if you look for failure, if you look for problems, if you look for reason to complain and to be disappointed, you will always find it. But if you're looking for the grace of God, if you're looking for evidences that God is working, you will find it in all of God's true people. The second thing we see in this passage, though, is not just Paul's gratitude expressed. We also see his gratitude explained. And we see that in verses 4 through 9. 
Verses 4 through 8 are, if you read verses 4 through 8, you notice it's actually a really long sentence. And it's a sentence that can be really tricky to see how it all fits together. But the main point, the main thing that Paul wants to express is in verse 4, he says, I'm thankful for the grace of God in you. And then what he does in the rest, all the way through the end of verse 8, is he expresses, here's all the ways that I see the grace of God working in you that causes me to be thankful. The first reason for Paul's gratitude is in verse 4. And he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you. And then notice the next part. By Jesus Christ. So the first reason Paul is expressing gratitude is because of the grace of God that was given to them by Jesus Christ. Now, we we have to remember who the Corinthians are. In our day and age, when we think of wicked people, we think or wicked places, we think of places like Las Vegas. This is Las Vegas in Bible days. And Paul's writing to the church at Las Vegas and he says, I am so thankful that I see the grace of God at work in the people of Las Vegas in the church. The church as a whole is some of the most pagan, idolatrous, fleshly, and sexually motivated people you could imagine. As a whole, this is a city that's given over to to sin and depravity in ways that it would be inappropriate to talk about in front of children. And as Paul sits back and thinks about the fact that he's writing to a church in this city, these are the most unlikely people to be God's people. And Paul realizes that because there's a church there, I know it is owing to one thing and only one thing. It's owing to a work of God's grace. And so before anything else, Paul gives thanks to the to his Lord, for the grace of God that is at work among them. We saw last week that grace is the disposition and action of God whereby he chooses to show kindness and favor to people who deserve the opposite. Grace is the disposition and action of God whereby he chooses to show kindness and favor to people who deserve the opposite. We say the grace of God is the unmerited favor of God. It's the dismerited favor of God. It's the, the, the favor that God shows to people who deserve his wrath. And it only makes sense that Paul would begin here, doesn't it? That he would begin expressing gratitude for the grace of God that is at work among them because when you think about the salvation of the Corinthians, it is at every point and in every way a work of God's grace. Their salvation, everything that they are and have in Christ is entirely because of grace. We know their salvation is entirely and in every point on the basis of grace because that's what the rest of Scripture tells us. Romans 11, 5 and 6 says, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Before the Corinthians had done anything good, before they did anything evil, there was an election according to grace and God chose them for this salvation because of grace. We know they're not only elected by grace, they're also justified, declared righteous by grace. Romans 3.24 says being justified freely 
by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They're elected by grace. They are justified by grace. We also know that they're, con- they're, they're being sanctified. They're being conformed into the image of Christ. How? By grace. You guys are good. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then notice what the grace of God that has appeared to all men does. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We also know the Corinthians are not only elected by grace, they're not only justified by grace, they're not only sanctified by grace, they will one day be glorified how? By grace. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Who will glorify them? He will. God will do it, and he will do it on the basis of grace. And so at every point from its inception in eternity past to its consummation in eternity future, when they will be glorified at every point, point their salvation is entirely on the basis of the dismerited favor of God that he shows them in spite of who they are the Corinthians don't deserve to be saved they haven't earned their salvation there's nothing in them or about them that makes them stand out for salvation they get saved not because of them but in spite of them they get saved because of grace and so Because their salvation is always and at every point and in every time entirely of grace, Paul starts this section by thanking God for the evidence of grace that he sees in them. Now, if that's true of the Corinthians, isn't it also true of us? That if the Corinthians are saved by grace at every point and in every way, is not our salvation the same thing? Like the Corinthians, we have to recognize our salvation is all of grace. It's not grace plus a little something we have done. It's not grace plus a little obedience. It's not grace plus a little law. It's grace plus nothing. Every aspect of our salvation is entirely because we have a God who sovereignly said, I'm going to choose to give you my favor. I'm sovereignly going to dispose my kindness and my love and my mercy to you. Not because of you, but because of me. And so what Paul does in the rest of this really long sentence is he shows the Corinthians several aspects of God's grace that causes him to be thankful. And the first aspect of this grace is that while it comes from God It is mediated to us by Jesus Christ. We see that at the end of verse 4. Notice the end of verse 4. It says, by Jesus Christ. So the the phrase, by Jesus Christ, is what's called a locative of sphere, which means that it's showing us the grace of God, the, the grace that Paul's thankful for, is experienced in, around, by, near, in relationship to Jesus Christ, in the atmosphere of Christ. That's the idea. And so what Paul's telling us is that while, while we get grace from every member of the Trinity, every member of the triune God is gracious. We experience that grace. That grace comes to us in a saving way only in our relationship with Jesus. And so this isn't simply grace. It's not simply common grace. 
God causes the sun to shine on the, the wicked and the righteous. That's common grace. This is saving grace, and it's found in and only in our union with Christ. That's why John 1, 14 and 17 say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so apart from Christ coming in the flesh, apart from Christ living a perfect, righteous, sinless life in absolute perfect conformity to the law of God on our behalf, apart from Christ dying in our stead on the cross, and apart from Christ rising from the dead and then uniting us to himself by faith, apart from that, there is no saving grace. The grace of God remains this out there ethereal thing, but what does Christ do? He brings grace. He shows us grace in the incarnation through the works of the gospel, and he is the one that mediates the grace of God to us. One of the things, though, that the the grace of God has done for the Corinthians is in verse 5. And it says, They are enriched in everything by Christ in all utterance and knowledge. So in verse 5, Paul's thanking God that the Corinthians have been enriched by Christ in two areas, in utterance and in knowledge. The word utterance and knowledge are really important. These are words that are going to pop up later several times in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. The word for utterance is the Greek word logos. It means word or speech, communication. The word knowledge is the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or wisdom. It's not going to be long before we start getting into some problems in wisdom in relationship to the Corinthians. And so Paul's thanking God that God has given the Corinthians both the ability to know, to comprehend, to receive spiritual knowledge, spiritual insight, insight into the word, insight into the human condition, insight into teaching and preaching. And also he's given them the ability to speak, to communicate, to talk, to, to use the word of God as they minister and communicate God's truth to other people. These aren't the only two gifts that God has given the church at Corinth, but there's a reason Paul highlights these as something he's thankful for. Listen to what he's going to say later in chapter 13, 1 and 2. He's going to come back to these gifts and he's going to say, even though I speak, even though I logos with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand, there it is, wisdom, understand all mystery and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, if I do not have love, I am nothing. So, so in 1 Corinthians 13, we find out the Corinthians are taking these two gifts that God has graciously given them. And what are they doing? They're not using them as graces. They're using them sinfully, wrongly as occasions to boast in their self-promoting pride and not to love God's people. They're abusing these very gifts that Paul is thankful for. And so Paul starts at the outset of this letter not by thanking God for their abuses of these gifts. He doesn't do that. But he does reorient the, the Corinthians' thinking by showing them, I'm thankful for these gifts because where do they come from? They come from grace. 
These are things God has graciously given to you. The obvious implication for the Corinthians is we have them wrong, don't we? We're taking and we're abusing the grace of God. We're taking the grace of God and we're like, check me out. I can speak in tongues. I can prophesy. Look at me. And Paul says, no, here's what you should do. You should do what I do when I see the grace of God at work in the lives of his people. You should thank God and boast in him. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, 1 through 8, where he says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, you should not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body, but in are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to what? According to the grace that's given to us. Let us use them. If prophesying, let us prophesy in proportion to to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What Paul's saying in Romans 12 is he's saying God has given every one of his people a gracious gift and the faith that they need to exercise that gift. And where do all of those gifts come from? They come from grace. And as we minister those gifts, we, like the Corinthians, should do so out of a recognition that God has given grace. He, he, we didn't like sign up and volunteer, I want this gift. And I want this gift so people look at me and think, what a dude. That guy's a spiritual stud. No, we get the gifts that we have because of grace. And so what about you? God has given many of his people here some amazing spiritual gifts. He's given some of you incredible insights into his word. Gifts of wisdom. He's given others incredible wisdom as they minister and counsel to one another and skill in doing so. He's given some of you the ability to speak truth with clarity, with conviction, with kindness, all at the same time, and that's hard. He's given some of you the the, the spiritual ability to serve other people, and somehow you cram 40 hours into a 24-hour day. And what do we do as we see those gifts at work in our own lives and in the lives of other people in the church? We should do not what the Corinthians are doing and be like, check me out. You should have a poster of me on the wall. I want to be like that guy. No, we should do what Paul's doing. And we should take all the praise, all the glory, all the attention, and we should reflect it off of ourselves and off of each other back to its source, which isn't us which is the grace of God that he has given us in his son. The next aspect of of grace that Paul's thankful for, the next aspect of his thanksgiving, he highlights in verse 6 when he says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So in verse 6, Paul's thanking God for the grace that he shows the Corinthians, and, and, and in particular, the grace that he showed them 
when Paul's testimony about Christ was confirmed to them. What does that mean? What does it mean that the grace of God has confirmed Paul's testimony about Christ to them? It means that when Paul was ministering at Corinth, preaching the good news about Christ, God God was actively working in the lives and in the hearts of the Corinthians to confirm, to establish, to convince them of the validity of the gospel. And it was God who was confirming the gospel message as he gave them faith. In other words, Paul's taking the Corinthians back to, back to the day of their salvation, back to the moment they were converted. And he's showing them their very act of believing, their heart of receptivity to the gospel, their willingness to embrace the message about Christ. Even that was a work of God's grace. They didn't believe because they were smart enough. They didn't believe because they were less depraved than the rest of the Corinthians. They believed because and only because they received the gospel and it was confirmed to them because the grace of God was first working in their sinful hearts to make them receptive. Albert Barnes says the gospel, it is here called the testimony of Christ. It was proved to be divine by the miraculous attestations of the Holy Spirit. It was confirmed or made certain to their souls by the agency of the Holy Spirit who sealed it to their hearts. And so Paul comes and thanks God that the gospel was confirmed. It was made certain. It was believed and received by faith because He knows that they received the gospel. They believed in Christ because the grace of God was there persuading, convicting, changing their hearts and making them people of faith. Philippians 1.29 says the same thing. It just says it more clearly when it says, For to you it has been granted, to you it has been graced on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What's Paul saying in Philippians 1.29? He's saying it's been given to you to believe. Your faith, your ability to receive Christ and embrace the gospel as your own is because God has given you that. Why does anyone believe in Christ? Because they're intuitive? Because they're wise? Because they're smart? Because they're upbringing? Because they're morality? Because they're anything? The only reason anyone believes in Christ ever is because the Holy Spirit takes the gospel of Christ and confirms it in their heart. So what about you? When you think about your salvation, when you look back on that day when you first believed, who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? Who gets the praise? If we realize that even the confirmation of the gospel in my heart is a work of grace, we have to look even at our faith as an occasion to reflect glory back to our God. But then in verse 7, Paul highlights another aspect of God's grace. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of the the more modern translations of verse 7 have done many of us a huge disservice in verse 7, and they've added the word spiritual in front of the word gift. 
The word spiritual, if you have it in your Bible, is in italics because it's not in the original language. What happened is the Bible translators interpreted for us what this grace, what this gift is, and they added the word spiritual, which is actually really unhelpful. The reason it's a disfavor to us is because the word that gets used here is the Greek word charisma. It can mean a grace that's given or it can mean a gift that's given. It's the same word that could be translated one of two ways, either a grace or a gift. And by translating it and adding the word spiritual gift, it lends us to think that Paul's focusing most narrowly on spiritual gifts as we normally think of them. Things like he'll go on to talk about speaking in tongues and prophesying, gifts of service in the church. And by adding the word spiritual, the translators are tipping us in that direction. I don't think that Paul's talking about spiritual gifts the way we normally think about them. I think Paul's talking about the all-encompassing grace that we need in every moment of our lives as God's people. The reason I think that is because in verse 7, these gifts, these graces, they are what we need when for the entire period of time as we are anxiously, eagerly awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is an obvious reference to the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And Paul's telling us that God has not only given us grace at the moment when the gospel was confirmed to us, he is also from that moment on until the revelation of Christ, till the return of Christ, till we are glorified with him, he is also giving us every grace we need. That's what Paul's saying. When Paul tells us we come short in no grace, no gift, no gift from God, which is grace, Paul's telling us there is nothing that you need as God's people that God is withholding from you. There's no grace you need to endure patiently until Christ returns that God is sitting up there holding and not giving you. There's nothing God's people need that has not been given to them. Do you need grace to resist temptation? Absolutely. Paul's telling us God's already given it to you. Do you need grace to endure and persevere in the faith? Absolutely. And Paul's telling us God has already given it to you. Do you need grace tomorrow as you wake up and fight for joy? I do. And Paul's telling us he's already given it to us. Do you need grace to suffer and even to die well as you bring God glory in your darkest days? Absolutely. And Paul's telling us God has already given it to us. If there's a grace we need from eternity past, from our justification to the return of Christ, if there's a grace we need, Paul's telling us God has already given us all of his grace. He's not withholding grace from you. God has already given us every grace we need from now until the day when Christ appears and returns to usher us into his presence. But there's another aspect of of God's grace mentioned in verse 8. Notice verse 8. It also says, Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so verse 7 ends with, by, by Paul introducing the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. And he tells us at the end of verse 7, God is giving you every grace you need 
until the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now in verse 8, Paul recognizes that he's done something in the heart and in the mind of every sinner in this room. Because the day of Christ, we know the day of the revelation of the Son of God is a day of two things. Salvation, yes, but it's also a day of judgment. And when we as people who still battle sin think about the return of Christ, we go, ooh, I'm not sure anxiously awaiting is what I would say. A little fearful maybe. Paul recognizes that for sinners like the Corinthians and for sinners like us, the day of Christ's appearance, the day of the revelation of Christ, is not always something we eagerly await. For many of us, it's a fearful thing because we know we still struggle with sin. We know Christ on that day will judge the world in righteousness. And so the return of Christ that's introduced in verse 7 raises the question, okay, so if Christ is going to return and if he's going to give us all the grace we need between now and then, how do I know that if I continue to battle with remaining sin between now and then, how do I know it will go well with me on that day? I mean, will my struggle with sin right now for the next 50 years make the grace of God that he's giving me null and void on the day when Christ returns? I wonder if for some of you that's your greatest fear. That yeah, I got grace the moment I believed. I know I got grace in eternity past. But when I think about the return of Christ, when I think about the reality of my own remaining sinfulness, I'm actually really creeped out about the day of judgment because I'm not performing the way that I should. I'm not as holy as I should be. And maybe I'll fail to to pass the test on judgment day because I still struggle with this remaining sin that I should probably be over by now. I mean, I know I'm saved by grace, but don't I have to do enough good works to maintain that? Don't I have to keep myself saved somehow by my own performance? Can I lose my salvation if I sin often enough or in a heinous enough way? And to answer those fears that Paul knows he's raised in our hearts, he tells us in verse 8, the grace of God is not just working at the moment of your salvation. It's also working in us 25 hours a day to maintain our faith, to keep us in Christ, to keep that relationship, that that union with Christ, so that at the end of our lives, at the end of history, when Christ returns, we will be blameless at the return of Christ. The word end in verse 8, he will keep you to the end is the Greek word telos. And it doesn't mean in like a final, like the final period of time. So you watch a movie, and when the movie's done, the screen says the end. In that sense, we use the word end to say it's over, it's done. That's not what it means here. It means end like a goal, a destination. And, and so Paul's saying God's grace is working in us to the end, to the goal, for the purpose of confirming us and making us to be blameless when Christ returns. If you know anything about your own heart, you read the word blameless and you think, I think Paul's pen broke. Blameless? Me? Maybe his pen exploded and maybe there's just a little splash of ink that should have not been there that ended up being there and takes the word blame and accidentally makes it blameless. Is that what happened? 
Is Paul really telling us that the grace of God is such at work in the lives and hearts of God's people that when Christ returns to judge us, there will not be an ounce of blame that sticks to God's people? Is that what he's telling us? There will be no accusation that can be brought against God's people that will in any way bring them under guilt. The answer is absolutely that's what Paul's teaching us. He's teaching us the Christian doctrine of justification. The Christian doctrine of justification answers the question of how can sinful people like us ever be considered blameless in God's presence? How can we ever be received in God's presence? And to answer that question is to understand the very heart of why Christ came into the world. For anyone to be received into God's presence, they have to be blameless. They have to be righteous. They have to be holy. They have to be perfect. And because we are not those things, Christ came into the world and he lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life at every point and in every way. He was perfectly in submission to the will and the heart and the law of God for his entire life. He glorified God at every moment of his life. And he did so certainly because he's God. But more importantly, he did so as a man who was representing God's people. He, He was standing in our place for 33 years as he walked this world, being righteous, being holy, being perfect, being conformed, being in submission to the law of God. And he did those things, yes, because they were right, but he did those things more importantly for us. He did those things in our place as our representative. Why? So he could take that really perfect, gracious, graciously earned righteousness and he could then give it to us as God's people as a gift. So that when we stand in God's presence in judgment, we won't stand in our own righteousness We will stand in Christ. We'll stand as if that life was wrapping us around, covering us, protecting us, and really where we are judged. But the doctrine of justification doesn't just answer the problem of our lack of righteousness. It also answers the question about our sin. Because even though God's people are clothed in His righteousness, we still have sins that we have to account for. If God's holy and he's just, and he is, he can't allow sins to go unpunished. And so the other side of the coin of justification is that Christ not only represents his people in his life, he also represents his people in his death. And what is Christ doing on the cross? The wages of sin is death. So how how and why does this perfect sinless one who has never sinned, how does he die? Why is he dying? And what is his death accomplishing? He's dying in our place. He takes his righteousness and he gives it to us, but he also takes our sin and he puts it on himself. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Which means that when Christ is on the cross, God is treating him as if he had committed every sin you have done. So Paul says that God's grace will keep you blameless until the day of Christ. Because on the day of Christ, we don't stand in our own righteousness. 
We don't stand in our own good works. We stand blameless on the day of Christ the same way we stand blameless every other day. Not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves. Because of grace. We stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we stand in his righteousness because he has taken all of our sins and we are now blameless in our union with him. Romans eight thirty three and 34 also talk about this and it says, who, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring an accusation? Who's going to call God's people guilty? And notice how Paul answers that. It's God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even right now at the right hand of God, who is always making intercession for us. (laughs) Romans starts this rhetorical question and it says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? And my conscience says me. Your conscience says you. Paul says, no, that's not what it's about. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He justifies us not because of ourselves. He he justifies us because of his grace. It's Christ who died, and it's Christ who was raised from the dead, and it's Christ who right now lives and intercedes for you at the right hand of God. This is so practical for us because Paul's teaching us that God's grace is so at work in the hearts and in the lives of those people who have trusted in him that they are receiving right now his persevering grace. He's keeping us by his grace, by the work of Christ. He's keeping us saved and he has already given us the salvation that he will maintain and that we can never lose. Maybe you lack assurance in your Christian life. Maybe you lack it because you are the first place you look when you wonder what it is. Assurance, I wonder if I have that. Well, how well did I do this week? Monday wasn't too bad. Tuesday, ooh, Tuesday was rough. Wednesday, I felt really bad for Tuesday, so I cleaned it up really good on Wednesday. But then I felt so good about cleaning it up on Wednesday that I messed up Thursday like nobody's business. And if we only look there for our assurance, guess what? Your assurance will be like a roller coaster. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Where does Paul go for assurance? He doesn't go to our performance. He goes to the grace of God. He goes to the grace of God that says he has chosen you in eternity past. He is the one who gave you faith. He's the one who's taken the testimony of Christ and confirmed it in your hearts. And he is right now preserving you in Christ blameless to the goal of the day that you will be blameless at the return of Christ. If you look at yourself, you will never have full assurance of hope. But if you look at Christ, who knows everything about you, including the things that rob you of your assurance. If you look at Christ who took all of your sins to the cross and paid for every last one of them, if you look at Christ who lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life so that he could give you that, that's where you will have assurance of your faith. Because it's him who has saved you in the past. It's him who is saving you today. And it's him who is confirming you in the future and is establishing you blameless until the day of Christ. We're actually going to sing about that truth in just a minute when we sing the song, Children of the Heavenly Father. The third, I think it's the third verse that says, Though he giveth or he taketh, 
God his children never forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for grace. Lord, we thank you for grace because it's all we have. We have no good works. We have no righteousness of our own, but we stand having not a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but we have the righteousness of Christ which has been given to us by faith. And Lord, we don't even stand with our own faith. We stand having had the Spirit confirm the gospel in our hearts and giving us faith. And so Lord, I pray that you will take your word today and use it to humble us Use it to remove any pride that's in any of our hearts where we would boast in our salvation, where we would boast in your gifts that you have given us, where we would boast in our perseverance. Lord, give us hearts like Paul's as he writes 1 Corinthians that simply glory in nothing but Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been edified by the message you heard from Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Warland, Wyoming. For more information about Sovereign Grace Bible Church or to support the ministry, contact them at sgbcwy.org. sgbcwy.org.